The Bob Murphy Show, episode 281. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome back to the bob murphy show i thought today i would go through two recent tweets that I believe underscored a basic misconception in economic theory, certainly from the Austrian perspective. And so maybe it'd be good to go through these things, if for no other reason than to just solidify what the Austrian take is on these two issues. So just to end your anticipation so you can stand it, Joe Weisenthal reacted to some guy who had been saying recessions are a good thing and Weisenthal didn't think so. And so that it'll be a good springboard for me to just discuss what the Austrian view is on recessions and the possible social function of, if you will. And then Elon Musk, you guys know Elon, right? He just today, as I'm recording this, tweeted out that money is a database. And so I know what he's trying to get across, but strictly speaking, that's not right. And so again, the point's not to beat up on Elon and to say, actually, although that's kind of fun too, but just to clarify what actually is money. All right, so let's do Weisenthal, Weisenthal first. So this guy, Adam Taggart, who his Twitter handle is Menlo Bear, and so some people were making fun of him for that. He started the ball rolling that he responded, this was actually on July 8th. He tweeted out some CNBC article with the headline, Fed's Goolsby sees golden path to lower inflation without a recession. And the subtitle is, Goolsby said he's confident inflation can be tamed without a recession, even with additional rate increases likely. And so then this Adam Taggart guy commenting on this article that he's tweeting says, OMG, did Goolsby just say the silent part out loud? Quote, let's never have another recession. And then now this is Adam. So I don't know if that was literally a quote or if he was just paraphrasing what Goolsby allegedly says in this article. By the way, I didn't click through and read the article, so I don't know if Goolsby was actually saying in general, hey, we've got this recession thing licked, or if he just meant in this particular case, he thinks a so-called soft landing is possible. So I'm not sure what Goolsby's claim was, but this guy, Adam Taggart, is summarizing, perhaps unfairly, his position by saying, let's never have another recession. So now this Adam Taggart is reacting to that quote, that he put in Goolsby's mouth by saying, if you suspected the Fed's longstanding attempts to suppress the business cycle are due to colossal hubris, this confirms it. And then somebody commented on his tweet and said, so you are pro-recessions and got 150 likes. And then Adam Taggart says, absolutely. They are a natural part of the business cycle necessary to call out the inevitable male investment that occurs in boom cycles. To try to indefinitely push off recession is folly. Plus, it only builds pressure, making the inevitable bust more damaging than necessary. So in response to that comment, Joe Weisenthal, who 
is currently co-host of the Odd Lots podcast, but he has had a long history as a financial press commentator, says, so he's retweeting again, that guy said, absolutely. They, meaning recessions, are a natural part of the business cycle, necessary to call it the inevitable malinvestment that occurs in boom cycles. And so Weisenthal says, it always seems weird to me that proselytizers of capitalism think recessions are the means by which the economy is cleansed of, quote, malinvestment. That's supposed to be what competition is for, exclamation point. All right, so I think that's enough summary for me now to comment, you know, sort of like discuss. The Federal Reserve, neither federal nor is there a reserve, discuss. So I don't know who this Adam Taggart is, but it wouldn't surprise me if he is well-read in the Austrian tradition because the terminology he's using is very Austrian, okay? Now, having said that, the one part where I perhaps disagree is when he's saying, oh, Goolsby, does he think that we could get rid of recessions forever? What a fool. That's setting us up for a disaster. So there, and maybe Tagger would agree with me. I, I, like I said, I don't know enough and I didn't go over like trying to figure out this guy's biography. So strictly speaking, could we get rid of recessions? Yes. I think if we had a separation of money in state and banking in state too, that's important. Then I think this familiar boom bust cycle that we see that's plagued market economies since at least the 1800s, that would largely go away. So be careful. It's not enough just to get rid of central banks. And this is something that I, a mistake that I would make too, when I would try to explain the Austrian theory of the business cycle, especially to a lay audience who was hearing it for the first time, a lot of times I would just summarize it by saying, oh, the central bank comes in and floods the market with cheap credit that's not backed by genuine saving, and that pushes down interest. And so if you start out from step one by saying the central bank does such and such, then people go, oh, but there were still panics or depressions with a small d, or what we nowadays might call recessions in U.S. history when before the Fed existed, and even perhaps in periods where there wasn't a bank of the United States, there wasn't even a central bank period. And so checkmate, Austrian. And so there, the mistake is not on the part of Ludwig von Mises. The mistake is on the part of Robert P. Murphy, who no one made a von because I made such silly mistakes. All right. So it's, there was just being sloppiness there that the Misesian theories, strictly speaking, he didn't call it the Austrian theory of the business cycle. He called it the circulation credit theory of the trade cycle. Not only did he call it that, he called it that in German. And, you know, his, theory of money and credit came out in 1912 before the Fed existed. So central banks had existed in, in Europe before then. So he had that. But the point was Mises, his theory actually has to do with when banks flood the market with what he called fiduciary media. Okay. So claims on money that are not backed up by the genuine article. And so specifically if the banking system all of a sudden decides to lower the reserve ratio, so like if they have a bunch of gold coins in the vaults and right now there's 80% reserves and then they decide to make more loans, not because people deposited more gold, but just because they're going to lower the reserve ratio, they just go ahead and issue more notes, more bank notes that are redeemable in gold thinking, oh no, the, you know, the demand in the financial sector has picked up and we can get away with reducing our reserve ratio from 80% down to 60% and it's okay. 
we're not going to get caught with our pants down. Not enough people are going to try to redeem these things for the actual gold that will make us run out of our reserves. So we'll go ahead and do that. But then in order to get the public to hold more of these notes, we got to lower the interest rate we're charging. Okay. And so that is what Mises called a credit expansion. And that's what sets in motion the unsustainable boom. And that's what causes mail investments. So that's a key concept. And that's why I think this guy Tagger must be familiar with the Austrian tradition because it's, you know, it's not that the Austrians are the only ones who use that word, but I don't know of other schools that use it as like a central concept in their vocabulary. And for Mises, he used that word to distinguish his theory from an overinvestment theory. Okay, so let me just make sure you get that distinction because that's critical that Mises is saying what happens during the boom, the problem is not that there's too much investment. He said, more specifically, the problem is that there is investment in the wrong things. So this is me now talking. It probably is true that the aggregate amount of investment, if you somehow could measure it as a lump sum, probably is higher than would be the case in an optimal outcome. But the point is, it's not merely that it's too much of a good thing. It's that the investment is going into the wrong lines. And so it's unsustainable. So the way I like to get across the difference is, suppose the government said to everybody, okay, we're going to impose a 30% savings rate. And if we catch anybody who's not saving at least 30% of their income, we're going to shoot you. Okay. So if they did that, and I mean, I'm sure if we, if we sat here and spent 10 minutes thinking through the implications, there'd be all sorts of stuff I'm not even thinking about that might even make that self-defeating. But I'm just trying to do a top level like to get across this basic distinction that Mises was making. So in a situation like that, but there was no interference with the credit markets per se. It wasn't that the banks issued more. No. So when people saved more, interest rates would drop, but it would be because of genuine saving. So it wouldn't be an artificially low interest rate in the sense that Austrians mean when they talk about a credit expansion because of the issuance of more fiduciary media, right? From the bank's lowering the reserve ratio here, even if the banks originally had 100% reserves and then the public now saves more because they're forced to at gunpoint, then the banks can still have 100% reserves and yet the volume of loanable funds now increases and the interest rate drops on the margin. And so that gives a green light to entrepreneurs to engage in longer term projects. And so what would happen there though, that would be sustainable, right? So that would not be an unsustainable boom. It would be sustainable and it wouldn't be a boom either because since the public was saving, how do you save more? Out of your current income, you consume less, right? So the the families would be cutting out a lot of their expenditures, the least important things to them, right? Because they know, oh, gee, we have to save X amount more. I suppose, too, you could add a thing in there like what the government says and you're not allowed to reduce your income. You know what I mean? Because maybe that's one way you could do it is you just wouldn't work as much or something. And But in any event, suppose they say basically the gross amount of your saving in dollar terms has to be such that it's 30% of the last income you had. So it forces everyone to keep their same jobs, I guess if they can, and save 30% of that number. Okay, so if everyone's trying to do that, then... My point is, how are they going to do? They're not going to go out to eat the restaurants as much. They're not going to buy new clothes. If you were going to buy a new car, maybe you postpone that decision 
and you, you know, take your other one into the shop to let that linger on a little bit longer, even though originally you were going to get rid of it, or you take the bus or whatever. People who are going to move into a fancier apartment, maybe they don't. Maybe they move into a more modest one to keep their rent down. Okay, so all these different adjustments people make, so their consumption spending is lower. So that's what frees up resources to be reallocated to what the Austrians would call higher order stages. Okay, neoclassicals might just call investment goods. Okay, so the economy is retooling. Instead of resources getting pumped into restaurants and making TVs and video games and movie theaters, let's just say, instead resources get channeled into video screens for training people and making factories instead of movie theaters and, and so forth. Okay, and making drill presses instead of restaurants. Okay, so that's the idea. So it's not a boom. It's not a general expansion and feeling of euphoria in all sectors. It's that some sectors see shrinkage. They see their sales plummet, namely like the consumption sectors, like those catering to final consumer goods and services. And that's what frees up the resources there to get reallocated elsewhere. So it's not that every business is doing well. It's some are shrinking while others are expanding. Okay. And that's also why it's sustainable. As long as the government enforces that 30% savings rate, there's enough new saving year after year in order for those longer term projects now to be finished for the, you know, the goods to get through the entire process and cross the finish line, even though they're longer in transit as it were. And so that is sustainable. And you still could see real incomes rising more rapidly in this equilibrium path, if you want to call it that, than in the original trajectory. Now, it's still suboptimal. You can't say, oh, so that's a good thing, right? To force people to save more. Yeah, maybe it's a little paternalistic, but it's for their own good. Well, you kind of, you know, if you want to be a moralist and just say your values are better than other people's and what they can do for their own lives, but not as an economist. As, as a you know, neutral economist, you would just say, no, people have intertemporal preferences that besides just in a static period, people having preferences over what kind of clothes do I like? What kind of car do I want? How much am I willing to spend to have a nicer place to live? All those things. There's also trade-offs they have in terms of time. And so to say how much would I be willing to give up today in order to have more of certain types of consumption or services in the future and people can have different numbers they would assign to those trade-offs. And as economists, we can't say whether that's good or bad or right or wrong. It's just that it is what it is. And so the government, by forcing you to save more than you wanted to voluntarily, is making you reduce your consumption more in the present than you wanted to. But at least as an offshoot, you get a lot more consumption in the future than you otherwise would have. Okay, so that's what the problem. And so that would be you could call an overinvestment situation where the government is forcing people to save and invest more than they wanted to. And so the problem is ex ante, they're unhappy now with their expected future course of consumption over time. That's suboptimal. That gives them less utility than a different trajectory. Okay. That's not so weighted heavily towards the future and away from the present. It's kind of like Mao's great leap forward, if you're familiar with that. But again, so long as the only direct intervention was forcing people to save more, but then the government would let market prices do their magic, 
then that would be sustainable. So that's kind of where it would differ from Miles' great leap forward is I think he did a lot more than just force people to save a lot and then let decentralized capitalism do the rest. Okay, so that's what like an overinvestment problem would look like. But notice there would be no reason for there to be a recession in that kind of a situation. Because that, again, it, we could call it a boom if you wanted to, but it really would just be a sustainable expansion over time, sustainable growth, all right? So normally when we talk about boom, we have this connotation that it's unsustainable and it's too exuberant, it's irrational, it's beyond what the fundamentals justify, all right? That's usually the connotation of it. In other words, you, you normally you wouldn't say, oh, the fact that living standards are higher in 1950 compared to 1850, that wasn't because we had a century-long boom. It's just to say, no, productivity goes up over time in market economies, generally speaking, for various reasons, okay? So what happens with the unsustainable boom, certainly in the Austrian framework, is that interest rates go down, not because the government forced people to save more, but because the government slash central bank slash banking system with the, I would argue, incentives set up by the government slash central bank, flood the market with credit that is not backed up by genuine saving. And then that still lowers interest rates, just like happened with the forced saving scenario. So entrepreneurs still expand their projects and start building more factories and drill presses and all the other stuff I said in terms of the expansion in the investment goods sector. But it's not counterbalanced by a shrinking in the consumption goods sectors. That those expand also, because ironically or perversely, with lower interest rates that are driven by a credit expansion, consumers save less because on the margin now, the reward or the incentive, if you want to talk like that, from saving just went down. So every sector is trying to expand at the same time. And in the Misesian story, in the sort of confusion caused by just getting boatloads of new money dumped into the system, people can persist for a while thinking that their sector really is profitable and that even if, you know, the prices of inputs start rising, it's okay because, hey, our sales are going up too, right? Everyone's got more money and especially to the extent that the monetary injections were unanticipated, people can erroneously believe that the reason sales are up is that they had good foresight. It's not just that, oh yeah, because everyone just got a bunch of money that the central bank or the banking system pumped into their pockets. So that's why sales are up. Now they think, ah, I wisely invested in this line. And so that's, you know, it makes sense that I should expand because I'm a good entrepreneur. I forecasted the future properly. I knew this was a good area to be in, but everybody's thinking that because all of their sales are rising. And so they all start trying to hire more workers. So that's why if there had been some slack in a high unemployment rate when the boom starts, that's why the unemployment rate comes down fast because those workers quickly now find places to go. And then once the unemployment rate gets down pretty low, now you know wages really start rising because the firms are all still trying to expand. They need more workers. And so they have to just get into a bidding war. So that's why the workers all feel flush. They can be picky and choosy. And if they don't like their job, they can quit because there's 10 other employers hoping they come to work for them offering more money than they were making at the last place. That's what happens during a boom. Everybody feels good. 
they start spending freely. Again, they don't save as much because they figure, oh, my salary just went up, so I don't need to save in dollar terms as much. Well, certainly they don't save as much in percentage terms. I should say that. Maybe they save it more in dollars, but they certainly don't save as much in percentages and partly because they might think that, oh, my income is going to keep going up perhaps, or at the very least, hey, let me splurge a little bit and then we'll settle down now that I have this permanently higher level of income. Okay, so perversely, like I say, you get entrepreneurs starting a bunch of long-term projects at the same time that the consumers are saving less. And so the amount of resources physically available to be devoted to these longer processes now goes down. And so it's physically, if once the boom gets underway, it is physically impossible to finish it. It doesn't matter how much money is injected in the system, that's not going to create more real resources. So the boom is unsustainable. It's not merely a matter of, oh, they're not going to have the will to see it to fruition. It is physically impossible, you know, unless there's some technological innovation that saves the day. But absent something like that, like to rescue them, given the parameters at the start of the boom, it has been set in motion that it has to fail at some point. Now, the actual trigger in terms of why does it fail at this point and not persist two months more, that timing can be affected by what the central bank does if there's a central bank involved or the banking system, if it's just a bunch of private banks acting in unison. So it appears that the central bank, quote, causes the recession by tightening, but that doesn't mean if the central bank would just keep flooding the market with new money forever and keep interest rates permanently low, that we would never have to have a bust. It just means you'd still get the bust eventually when the currency collapses. That's what would happen. Okay, so I think this guy, Adam Taggart, is probably on board with just about all of that. And that's why he's saying those things. But having said all that, my point is just, it's not wrong for someone to say, hey, we can imagine a world without recessions. It just, it wouldn't come from the Federal Reserve conducting scientific monetary policy, unless that meant the Fed just did nothing. Then, you know, all the Fed did was reproduce Rothbard's what has government done to our money pamphlets and, you know, remit the, <laughs> the profits from printing those books to the treasury. Okay, so let me just mention, so in that context then, what is the function of a recession? What does it do? Why do these Austrians perversely like the recession? So in the Austrian view, it's the boom that's the problem. And once the boom is underway, the best thing to do is to quickly bring it to an end. And unfortunately, if you have a bunch of resources, including workers, their labor hours, man hours, and women hours, or I guess woman hours, going into a bunch of different lines such that they're not all able to be fulfilled, at least some need to stop or at least some need to slow down what they're doing. In the real world, in practice, there's a combination. that some lines, it's not that they need to shut down altogether, but it means they can't be barreling forward as aggressively as they were before. Like, they got to scale back. In other lines, though, it means, no, you just need to stop. Like, everything at this factory needs to stop happening. People need to stop going to work tomorrow. And they just need to shut down. And then we got to go in in any inventory that's in there, just sell it, even if it's half-finished, in any raw materials sell it and maybe take out the equipment and sell it for scrap perhaps and possibly even knock the building down. And maybe that land is supposed to be used for something else. 
or maybe you know you clear everything out of the interior and then sell the land and the building to somebody else who puts an entirely different operation inside that place. Sometimes that's what's supposed to happen. All right. And the analogy that Mises uses for that is the so-called master builder. Mises says the economy is like in the position of a master builder who he surveys what he thinks he has in the beginning, like a bunch of wood and bricks and glass and so forth, a bunch of different types of laborers who are available. And so he draws up plans for a house that he's going to build using all those materials and nails and things like that. And then what if it turned out that he thought he had more bricks than he actually does? And so he starts building the house, you know, all the workers start obeying the plan. And the point is, what if there's just 10% fewer bricks than the blueprints thought there were? So here I'm adding stuff. I mean, this was Mises' original idea, but I'm embellishing it to drive home the relevance of the analogy for so-called monetary policy. At what point, suppose that's the situation, the builder's trying to build a house and everybody is using those resources according to a plan that is too grandiose. They're trying to build a house that's bigger and more impressive than what is physically possible with the materials they have at hand. And suppose they can't just go get more. And the point is, when would you want the builder to find out that information? And the answer obviously is, as soon as possible. Because the longer they sit there and start taking the lumber and cutting it up and then starting to build the gazebo and an external garage and all this other stuff, if there's not enough wood to go around, the earlier you realize that, what's going to happen? The master builder is going to pull out his bullhorn and say, stop to everybody. You over there, put down that nail, put down that board. And we got to stop. I have to revise the plans first. And he's going to look and see like, oh no, did we make some irrevocable moves already? Oh shoot, we already poured that concrete. Now that's kind of a done deal. But those two by fours over there, we actually haven't touched them yet. So I can totally rearrange what I was going to do with them. Those are still usable. Okay, so that's kind of the situation that the economy as a whole is in. Once the credit expansion stops and interest rates rise to the correct level, is now everybody's getting the correct market signals and they understand the true scarcity in the system. And now with the correct numbers and price signals, some of the entrepreneurs say, ooh, we need to stop immediately what we're doing. This is unsustainable. This is not a profitable enterprise. Okay, and so that's what happened. And so that's why when things start to get dicey and you know certain prices start rising and there's supply bottlenecks and certain businesses, their credit, is strained. And then people say to the central bank, oh, we got to keep the boom going. You got to pump in more money. Because if you don't, or, you know, we're, heaven forbid, if you started raising rates now because you're worried about price inflation, that would snuff out the boom. It would turn it into a bust. Certain businesses wouldn't be able to persist at higher interest rates. They'd have to lay workers off. What are you doing? And the point is, that's what needs to happen. And the sooner you do that, the better. Just like with the master builder, the sooner he realizes he thought he had more bricks than he really does, the better. If he found out right away, there'd be no problem. He would just revise the plans and then they'd go ahead and do it. The real problem would be is if the building's 60% done and then he realizes the problem and now they're kind of painted into a corner, as it were, that they already built so much of the house and the garage and the gazebo and blah, 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 that... They can't really just rearrange and devote the available bricks 
to their most urgent uses because they've already been squandered elsewhere. And at this point, you know, it'd be harder to get them out and use them elsewhere, that kind of thing. All right, so that's the idea. Folks, let's take a break from the action to explain what you can do to help make a difference. If you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute, you'll see some interesting offers there and you know what to do. Let's get back to the show. Okay, why don't I now switch to Elon, who says, or said, if you prefer. So he was talking to somebody and he said, like he tweeted out a video, or this guy Doge Designer tweeted out. And so Elon says, people get confused sometimes. They think an economy is money. Money is a database for exchange of goods and services. Money doesn't have power in and of itself. The actual economy is goods and services. Okay, and then in response to this guy Doge Designer tweeting that video with Elon, Elon himself then chimed in and said, Run the thought experiment. You're stranded on an island with no hope of rescue. You can have a pallet of food or a billion dollars. The latter has no value because there are no resources to allocate. Okay, so when I saw that, I tweeted that out and I said, what's more useful to my fellow man? Should I applaud Elon for understanding money illusion or should I criticize him for saying money is a database? And I got mixed reactions. And I think the correct thing is to do both, right? So... Yes, the big picture, what Elon's trying to get across here is perfectly correct. That the more money you have doesn't make the society as a whole richer. Even there, as you guys know, those who listen to a lot of this, the episodes here, I'm a little uncomfortable. Now, I'm not so confident in saying that. And I think, you know, that's famously like Adam Smith and his recoiling against the mercantilists. He stressed that. And the work of David Hume tried to show that and that, you know, really the idea is what makes a nation wealthy is having farmland and in our time, people who can program computers and brain surgeons and factories and iron ore deposits and railroads and skyscrapers and things like that, not just having more units of money. And a real easy way to see that is if you doubled the number of units of money, what would happen to a first approximation prices double. Whereas if you doubled the amount of arable farmland that you had, then food production goes up and everybody can eat more or you can you know, export more and get more goodies from others, that kind of stuff, right? So that's fine. My quibble, like I said, is back in the day, if people are using actual gold and silver as the money, you know, and you have a kingdom and they're conducting policy and the kingdom keeps adding to its gold reserves year after year, I don't think that was foolish or stupid. Like that's, because you can use that to import stuff from 400 down the road, which you want to, just like a regular household. It's not silly for them to save. It's not like, saying, oh, no, the real source of wealth is, you know, how many pizzas and new sweaters you get per year, not how many dollars you accumulate in your bank account. That would be silly, right? So anyway, certainly if you're looking at planet Earth as a whole, and if the money has no commodity value, if it's just like fiat money, then fair enough. I think it's probably correct to say increasing the money stock in general doesn't really make people wealthier. Okay. So good for Elon for getting that. Now, let me be saying, actually, so no, money is not a database. Some people chimed in and said, well, it can be, by which I assume, like Alex Tabarrok said that, I assume he's referring to Bitcoin and other types of blockchain-based currencies, also known as cryptocurrencies, 
But there I countered and I said, well, number one is Elon didn't say money could be a database. He said it is a database, but also I don't think Bitcoin's money yet, right? So to me, a money is a generally accepted medium of exchange. Bitcoin's a medium of exchange for sure, but I don't think it's generally accepted the way we mean that phrase to refer to something as money, right? So yes, you can find a bunch of people who will all accept Bitcoin, but I think what we mean when we say it's generally accepted is like, is there a group of people that they can go through their daily lives and just interact and get the things they want, generally speaking, with other people who all accept the same thing as a medium of exchange? Even there, that I just rule out the possibility of international trade? I get it. It's actually hard to pin down exactly what do you mean by saying money is a generally accepted medium of exchange, but you know, kind of like, what are the necessary and sufficient conditions for something to be furniture? And you can't really do it. You know, it's like a Wittgensteinian point. But I'm saying, putting aside all of the grammatical quibbles and stuff and philosophical deep thoughts, I don't think Bitcoin is yet money because I don't think it's generally accepted the way the euro is or the dollar or the yen. Okay. What money is, it is a commodity. Even if you're talking about state-issued fiat money, right? It's a commodity because it's not a service, right? Or do you want to say it's a good if you want to reserve the term commodity for things like wheat or something? Okay, fine. But it, then it's a good, all right? And you exchange it. And there's no, it's not a promise. It's not an IOU. Some people like who are endorsing Elon's statement said stuff like, wait, what's the problem, Bob? No, it is. It's like, it's a record of transactions. That's just like, like gold was. It's a ledger. And I, and I said, no, gold in no way is a ledger of transactions. I said, there could be ledgers of transactions involving gold, but no, gold is a chunk of yellow metal. What are you talking about? It doesn't contain any information at all, or at least <laughs> not having to do with the transactions. Like you can maybe look in terms of the atomic structure and if you think there's some kind of cosmic code built in there, or the age of the universe or whatever, but you get what I'm saying. Nothing economic is embedded inside the gold intrinsically, okay? And this is something, too, that I think a lot of hard money types miss. It's also popular, for example, to say, oh, money is a measuring rod of value, just like a meter stick or a ruler, like a 12-inch ruler or a scale, like, you know, measuring length or weight or mass, and money measures economic value. And that's why inflation's bad, is because it distorts our rulers. People talk like that, like Steve Forbes and some others talk like that. And no, it's fine, you know, some of the guys saying that at a party, I'm not going to sit there and go to war with them. But no, strictly speaking, that's not correct. If you really want to understand what money is, it's not a database. It's not information per se. It's not energy. And it's not a measuring rod. All right. Even if everybody used gold coins. And even if there were no more, forget that, how about Bitcoins, right? Let's say we get to the point where 21 million Bitcoins have been mined. Everyone's holding them. The accounting of maybe 1 million have been lost. So now there's like 20 million that people know about, know how to access, okay? No more is coming in. So you might think that's an immutable now measuring rod that's not going to be distorted. And if for some reason, people all of a sudden don't like Bitcoin as much, and they want each person wants to hold half as much Bitcoin as they did last Thursday. What's going to happen is prices measured in Bitcoin are going to double, and that will restore equilibrium. 
And now in real purchasing power terms, everybody will hold half as much Bitcoin as before. And so that kind of thing can happen because in that subjective preferences. So there's no way you can design money can't function as a measuring rod of value the way you think like a ruler measures length. And really because it comes down to is that value is a subjective thing, whereas length is objective. All right. So, I mean, you, you can just flat out say, no, what I mean is one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. And that that's what objectively, that's what I mean by economic value is Bitcoins. And that's fine. But I'm just saying it's still possible, like I said, in that thought experiment that all of a sudden people's subjective preferences, their demand for Bitcoins could change. And then you would see prices all double. And unless you just wanted to say, oh yeah, economic output just doubled and global GDP just doubled. I don't think you'd want to say that. I think you'd want to say, no, something happened that the, what the Bitcoin was measuring just got cut in half or something like that. All right, the ruler is just, shrunk 50%. And so that's why when we go to measure everything now, it takes twice as many times of laying the ruler end over end to measure the length of this thing. If we're thinking of economic value as a dimension to be measured. Okay. And so that's why Mises didn't think of it like that. He was saying that's not the right way. He, so in other words, Mises was saying it's not that economic value is this separate quantity that money measures. That's what he was saying. So I think he's got to, I hope I'm getting this right. I think the exact quote is from Mises is to say, money doesn't measure prices, prices consist in money, something like that. Okay, so there, it is a subtle thing and money, Mises' whole big deal is economic calculation. So there is something to be said for the fact that one half of every transaction is the money commodity or the money good. And that allows us to reduce all these disparate transactions to a common denominator and a firm in any given accounting period can look at its monetary expenditures and its monetary revenues and try to decide, are we profitable? And in that context, that's why debasing the currency has bad effects because it makes it hard. It in a sense falsifies the accounting. But on the other hand, Mises also stressed, don't fall for the opposite fallacy and don't think that just because Governments debasing the currency and having unexpected bursts of rapid monetary inflation. We can all agree that's bad and that reduces the ability of entrepreneurs to use economic calculation to guide their activities. Don't think then that, oh, so the ideal monetary system would be one with money that had a constant purchasing power. And Mises said that that's illusory, that the only way to really get that would be if human desires never changed. You'd have to lock that in. Okay, so here I'm riffing a bit, like to try to get across like what Mises is talking about. Because you could, what you could do is you could imagine a monetary unit that's like constant in terms of the purchasing power of some consumer basket, right? Like with cryptocurrencies, I recently interviewed Larry White on the Founders Forum podcast. And he made the point that there's, like the problem with stable coins is what if the dollar or the euro, whatever they're, pegged to is debased, right? That's the problem with those things. And so ideally he's saying, I think he called them flat coins. Now he's saying that's like something that's tied to the US dollar, but it also gets augmented by the CPI inflation rate. And so strictly speaking, that thing, what it's doing is it, it regulates the supply of those coins, those you know digital assets, such that it maintains a constant 
purchasing power vis-a-vis some fixed basket of consumer goods. But even there, so is that ideal? Well, which basket of consumer goods should you pick? And notice right off the bat, no two people are going to agree, even if they agreed on like, oh, well, I should have milk and eggs and gasoline and and a kilowatt of electricity. Okay, well, how many units of each of those things, right? Should it be a gallon of milk? Why not two gallons? Should it be a dozen eggs? Well, why not six dozen? You know, maybe what we should do is look at what does the household buy in a week, right? So the point is, you're not going to come up with agreement, all that stuff, and different households are going to have different views. Some people don't need gasoline because they drive an electric vehicle, whereas other people are going to drive a gas-guzzling pickup truck or something. And so they're going to think gasoline is really important. So you see the point, and that even if one household did agree over time, it would cease to agree. Okay, so my point is, even if you locked in a currency that was awesome and like, oh, yes, this is exactly what we want in terms of when we say we want to maintain our purchasing power and have money that's dependable. And when I put aside 100 units of this money for next year, I know what I'm going to be able to get for it. Okay, that's fine. And then what happens if next year you realize, oh no, my tastes have changed or the situation's different. My kid got sick and it turns out the ability to afford healthcare is way more important to me than the ability to go to the movies. And so I wish I had weighted healthcare more heavily in my consumer basket than going to the movies, right? So that kind of stuff can happen. So I'm just trying to show you that Mises' point is because we see the dangers of rampant inflation, you would think the ideal would be a money with a fixed purchasing power in terms of some commodity basket, but no, that's not true. And in general, this is the last point I'll make here is <laughs> the baby's preferences have begun to change. If you think about it, a lot of what we could do would be to have long-term intertemporal contracts, right? So really what you might want to do is to take your purchasing power right now and pin down, you know, oh, yes, over the next five years, this is how many boxes of cereal I want. And this is how many blah, 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 blah. And they have it like in neoclassical economics. I learned these kind of models in grad school. You'd have what we call you know, arrow de brew general equilibrium models where they age in at time zero, just had a complete web, a whole schedule of contingent contracts. So even in a world of uncertainty, just saying at any future time, there's a random variable that gets realized and the state of the world is such and such. And in that outcome, I have prepaid to have all these different amounts of various consumer goods delivered to me, all right? So it's a real complex mathematical thing, and you can go ahead and do that. But in the real world, we don't have that. And partly the function of what money does is it allows you to defer your decisions, right? So it's not so much that, oh, the reason you're holding this much in your cash balances is because you know exactly what you're going to spend the money on over the next few weeks until you hit the ATM again. No, partly why you hold cash in your wallet or your purse or whatever is because you don't know what you're going to spend it on. And the, the reason you kind of feel nervous or anxious if you only have like $1 on you, even if you've got cards, is because you realize I might be out. Maybe I need to buy something from someone who's not going to take my debit card. And you say, well, who? I don't know. But that's why I like to have $100 on me in tens and fives or whatever. So it's partly the function of holding money is to have this sort of abstract purchasing power. So there, I mean, that's, I think, you know, what Elon's trying to get at or whatever, like, oh, see what it's going on with money is you provide goods and services now 
And then like society keeps track of that and they credit you on the ledger. And that allows you down the road when you want stuff to like withdraw from society. And then we debit you. And, and yeah, I get the analogy, but strictly speaking, no, that's not what happens. You could go ahead and do a bunch of work right now in exchange for some money, whether it's gold bars or US dollar bills or even Bitcoins and or even a CBDC. And then next year you go to spend it and there has been hyperinflation in the meantime. Not even because the central bank or whoever issued a bunch more. It could just be that the public decides they don't like that anymore, that kind of money. And so maybe the prices quoted in that thing skyrocket. Okay? That could happen, right? That, so it's not that you were lied to or something, you know what I mean? Like you, you might feel like, shoot, I didn't realize that was what was going to happen and you regret what you did. But it's not like somebody went in and changed the ledger. It's not that society reneged on its promise to you. There was no, there was no promise. You made an exchange for a good, that was the transaction, and then you went to do something else. So again, I'm not trying to be coy. I understand there's a sense in which, oh, money is kind of just like a veil. And really what's happening when you sell your services and get money, and then the next week you go and you spend your money at the grocery store, really, it's like this big involved series of transactions where you sold your services last week in exchange for then the grocer giving you food and stuff, and the money coordinates it. Yeah, that's all true, but strictly speaking, there's no binding contract, right? It's not that somebody reneged on their promise to you if you, when you go to spend that money at the grocery store, you find that apples are a lot more expensive than you thought they were going to be, okay? So, all right. Well, that's a good spot to stop. Thanks for tuning in, everybody, and I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.